Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for these last few moments where we could just turn, turn our eyes to you, turn our hearts towards you, see your face. Thank you that we can worship you. And in these moments, uh, the things um, of earth can, can grow strangely dim. So come, come Jesus. We pray. You know our hearts, God. You know what we've brought in here. You know the things that have been weighing us down, the things that kept us up last night, the things we're wondering, are they going to keep us up again tonight? And so pray that your peace would come and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that peace uh, that doesn't make sense, the peace that transcends understanding would come. I just pray for hearts and minds here to be guarded with your peace. Teach us tonight, God, as we hear from your holy word through the scriptures that we believe were inspired by you um, and have been given to us to speak to us with authority and with truth. And so help us to hear, help us to hear for our lives and give us that courage uh, to be obedient, to hear and obey and walk forward in, in power and, and in truth. I pray for hearts here tonight that just need to be healed, uh, that have brokenness and, and strife, that are wounded. I pray that you would come and bind, bind us up, bind our hearts. Above all, Lord, uh, we thank you for Jesus who went to the cross for our sins, who died, gave his life so that we could have life, went to the tomb, and then three days later was resurrected. And because Jesus came walking out of that tomb, it means we can walk out of here tonight with confidence, um, with uh, joy, and with a new insight uh, as people who belong to God and who are led by your Spirit. And so we join our voices together in a prayer that our Lord taught us. I invite everyone to pray with me the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So my name is Rachel Armstrong. If you noticed an especially warm welcome from Pastor Jacob, that's because we're married. Um, so I have been a part of Providence Church for the whole 13-ish years that God has been doing wonderful things here. But in the last six months, I took on a new role at the church and I've been the director of student ministries working with our sixth through 12th graders. So our whole church has been in this sermon series, Jesus Changed My Life, leading up to the baptism service that we had last Thursday night. And we had 15 sixth through 12th graders who either said yes to Jesus for the first time or recommitted their life to Christ, yes. And I wanted to invite one of them to come and lead us in worship by reading our scripture. So this is Caleb Lamb, and he is an eighth grader at our church. Come on over, Caleb. Caleb um, said yes to Jesus and was baptized for the first time last Thursday night, and he's gonna read our scripture. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, 
those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is one whom is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I truly tell you, among those who are born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is in least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Thank you. Join me in the words in bold. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there at the end, Caleb read to us Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Well, that's a strong statement. And you think about all the heroes of the faith we have. We have Father Abraham, we have King David, we have Moses. Jesus says none of them are greater than John the Baptist. And so let's think about what we've learned about John um, from Scripture and over these last few weeks. And John's story starts before he's even born. In fact, before he's even conceived. If you've been at Providence Church during the Advent season leading up to Christmas, you've heard this story because we love it and we tell it here every year. Zachariah and Elizabeth were a faithful couple who were um, devoted to God. He was a priest, but they were never able to bear children. And when Zechariah was old, he was called into the temple to burn incense before the Lord. And the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him, God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, is going to bear a son. You're going to name him John, and he will be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. So John has his birth foretold by an angel. That's pretty impressive, right? Like the only other person that I can think of who's got that story is Jesus himself. And so, in fact, that same angel Gabriel who appeared to Zechariah then moves to Mary. And he says to Mary, you're highly favored among women. You're the one who's going to give birth to God's son. And after the angel Gabriel left Mary, Luke 1 tells us exactly what Mary did. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, John, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So baby John in his mother's womb could recognize Jesus who was in his mother's womb. That's a deep connection to the Holy Spirit. If before you're born, you're able to sense what God is doing in the world. So the day came for John to be born and his father, Zachariah, is filled with the Holy Spirit and he begins to exclaim over God's goodness that God is going to send a Messiah who's going to save the people of Israel. And in his song, he prophesies over his little baby boy that John will go before the Lord and prepare the way for him. And I imagine that John heard this story all growing up, right? If, if your parents waited their whole lives for you and they get an angel who announces that you're coming and then your dad starts prophesying filled with the Holy Spirit because they know you're calling in life, you're gonna hear about it. So John lives his life very aware of what God's doing um, and his role. 
So here's where we have to use our imagination just a little bit because the scripture kind of gives us some holes to fill in. So we know Jesus and John encountered, encountered each other in the womb. And we know, we've studied these last few weeks, that they meet again at the Jordan River when they're 30 years old and entering public ministry. But did they see each other any in between those times? I imagine that they did. Their moms are cousins. Mary ran to Elizabeth as soon as she found out she was expecting And it seems like they would have spent time together as families. That's just my personal guess. We do know that Jesus went to Jerusalem for holy days and for festivals. The scripture says that's the pattern of his family's life. And I would imagine that that's the pattern of John's family's life as well. We have that story when Jesus is 12, where he goes missing for three days. And it says the first day, his parents didn't even worry about him as they were traveling home with their extended family and friends. So it paints this picture of Jesus as a part of a village, right? Extended family and friends that are intimate part of his life. And I just think there's a chance that John and Zechariah and Elizabeth are included in this extended family of Jesus. So one other interesting verse from scripture to help us as we fill in these blanks is Luke 1.80. It says, and the child, John, grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. So at some point in his life, John changed from this little baby boy, this toddler, this small child who was in his parents' home into this man who lived in the wilderness, wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and honey that we've talked about. And so when uh, this is the part of his life that we've been studying, where we saw him proclaiming, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, When he didn't try to hang on to the power and the popularity and the crowds that were following, following him, but pointed them to Jesus and said, he must become greater and I must become less. John actually baptized Jesus and he saw the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus in the form of a dove. He's had an incredible role in the story. No one was greater than him. And that's why where we find John in this passage is a little bit surprising to him and to us. So Matthew 11.2 opens with this phrase, when John, who was in prison. Prison? Well, how did the greatest prophet end up in prison? Well, he was doing what a prophet does. He was telling people, repent of your sins and return to God. Well, he said that to the highest government official around King Herod, and it didn't go over very well. So he finds himself sitting in prison, and he began to have some questions about what was happening. So John sent his disciples to ask Jesus some questions. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So we've just covered how well John knows who Jesus is. He knew it in the womb. He knew it at the Jordan River. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but sitting in that prison, he's not sure anymore. He's expecting the Messiah to act in a way that makes sense to him. He's known his whole life that he was preparing the way for the Lord. And I think he probably had imagined what the Lord would do when he arrived. And I'm sure he expected that the Messiah would back him up in this little issue with King Herod and that he'd be overthrowing this corrupt government. But here John sits in prison and he begins to question, are you the one or should we expect someone else? John had expectations that did not get met. John expected God to operate in a way that made sense to John. 
and how hard it is for us when God does not meet our expectations. John is basically saying, I thought you were the one, but I'm wondering if I should be expecting someone else who behaves more in line with the way I thought that you would. And we all have expectations of God, if we realize it or not. Sometimes we don't even know how they're formed. When I reached adulthood, I began to recognize an expectation that I had of God. And it came from the way my family shows love. So I was raised and I'm still being raised or I'm raised in, I'm still in a family that is um, very loving and they're extravagant in their love, but a value that my family holds very dear in showing love is equality and fairness. We want everything to be equal. We don't want anyone to worry that someone else is a favorite. We all want everyone to feel confident that they are deeply loved. And I don't know how many generations this goes back, but I know I see it clearly in my memories of my grandparents on both sides. So my dad's parents, um, who passed away when I was 11, I still have memories of being at their house for birthday parties for my siblings or my cousins. And they didn't just get the birthday boy or girl a present, they got all the children a present so that no one felt left out or sad. So that was, that was my dad's side of the family. Then you go to my mom's side of the family and my grandmother, she set a precedent that holds firm. Her children have carried it down. Um, and that is Christmas gifts, birthday gifts all have to be equal. So it would mean we all have to have the same number of presents to open, right? Because you have to go around the circle and everyone gets the same number. But also the amount spent on the presents has to be the same. So that's hard but my grandmother had a way to solve it. You might get a card that has $4.17 in it so that you know that you got the exact same thing as your cousins and your siblings. And this is true. I'm not making this up. So um, there's also ways that weren't just gifts. Time, there is lots of love shown in time. You show up for every t-ball game, for every volleyball game, for every graduation, for every school program. My husband is yesing because he inherited this family. He's had to learn. So um, that is how we show love. One more. I just want to tell you one more. Also with dessert. So if we're celebrating the summer birthdays, well, you have to have the lemon meringue pie because that's Carrie's favorite. But my dad, he wants the chocolate pie and someone likes my mom's chocolate cake with that icing. So you have to have a birthday dessert for each birthday person because you can't even like switch years. It's just every year, everyone gets their favorite. And this is how we operate. And it's great and it's cute, um, but it can set you up for some disappointment (laughs) when you get into adulthood and you find out that not everyone will be setting up life to be fair and equal for you from here on out. And you begin to look around and see not everybody is experiencing life in the same way. So not everyone grows up in a home where they're loved extravagantly and not everyone is born into wealth or comfort. Some people are born into poverty. And then our life experiences don't turn out the same. There's people who have learning disabilities and school's really hard. There's people who get laid off from their jobs through no fault of their own. Some people struggle with um, depression, anxiety. Some people grow up in a Christian home and are blessed to know Jesus their whole life. Some people don't hear about him till way on down the road. Like, this isn't fair. This isn't equal. And I did not expect God to operate in this way because God said he loved all of us. So where is the equality and where is the fairness? And why is he not operating in a way that makes sense to me? Um, So I kind of came to that place that says, I don't understand how you're working. So are you the one or should I be looking for someone else? You know? And so I had to start allowing God to shift my expectations. I had to start listening for him to tell me how he worked. And I began to see when I looked at scriptures in different ways that God clearly does not value the human idea 
of equality and fairness. He just doesn't even pretend to. You can see it all through scripture. I hear the parable where Jesus said, you know, there's a master and he gives his servants talents to invest and to work. And he gives one three and one five and one 10. I'm like, well, what? You can't do that. You can't start people off with different amounts and, and see what happens. And then there's the story of the manager who's hiring workers for his field. And some start working for him early in the morning. Some come around noon. There's some people that just work one hour of the day and he pays them all the same. That would not fly in my family because people did different amounts of work. And, you know, there's definitely going to be a set rate that everyone gets, but it's going to be, it's all going to be fair and equal. It's not going to be, my cousin, he only picked up sticks in the yard for an hour, you know, like what? So I didn't understand, but I start seeing that God, God has some way this makes sense to him. Um, And then I think about how God says we're all a part of this body. And some of us are like, well, I don't want to be a hand. I wanted to be a foot. Someone says, I didn't want to be the eyes. I wanted to be the nose. And he says, no, that won't work. The body doesn't work if we're all the same. I have purpose in these differences and in these different places. And the Bible says we all get the same Holy Spirit, but he gives us different gifts according to the grace he decides and he gives us. So some of us might get the gift of mercy and we need that. And some of us might have the gift of hospitality. We need that too. So God starts showing me, I can't do everything exactly the same for every person. I have purpose in the difference. And he also began to teach me over time that I'm actually a really poor judge of what the good gifts are. I thought I knew which ones were good and which ones we should want. But, you know, just in the book of James that we studied a few weeks ago here at church, it says um, in James 3, it's the poor in the eyes of the world who are rich in faith and who inherit the kingdom that God has promised to those who love him. So I would have told you it's the rich who are getting the good gift. And Jesus says, there's another way to look at this. I need you to shift a little bit in your expectations. Um, And so I had to begin doing that work of seeing what Jesus was saying. He's like, I am the one but I may not work the way you're expecting. And John the Baptist had to do the same thing. Jesus began to shift John's expectations. So when John's disciples brought his questions to Jesus, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. It's like Jesus is saying to John, John, you thought you knew how the kingdom of God would look. You thought you wouldn't be in a prison cell. You thought that I would overthrow this corrupt government, but I show my love and my power in a different way than you expected. Can you trust me in that, John? Can you start rearranging your ideas of what for God so loved the world should look like? And it seems like Jesus had confidence in John that he'd be able to do that, that he would not stumble over the surprising ways that Jesus works. So after Jesus sends that message to John through his disciples, Jesus turns back to the crowds and he begins to talk to them about John. And he says, John is not just a prophet. He's the one predicted in the Hebrew scriptures who will prepare the way of the Lord. And then Jesus is something that we may not have expected. Truly, I tell you, Among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So you are greater than John. We've bragged on John all night. Jesus said you're greater. The least in the kingdom of heaven. So who's in the kingdom of heaven? That's the people who've said yes to Jesus. That's the ones who've accepted this free gift of salvation that he's offering. 
So the very newest member of the family who's done nothing but accept this generous gift, they're greater than John, greater than someone whose birth was foretold by an angel and who fulfilled Old Testament prophecies and who baptized the Messiah. I'm greater than him. You're greater than him. Well, that's hard to understand sometimes. And as I've wrestled with that, preparing for tonight, I think the best way I can explain it to you is that John was the last person in a long line of faithful people who believed God would send the Messiah and that he would save the people, but he didn't get to see how God accomplished that plan. John didn't live to see Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. So he was believing that God would do the work he's promised, but he didn't know how. Whereas we are a part of this new covenant, a better covenant that God is offering, we've seen the story of Jesus in its entirety. We know that he lived a perfect life, that he died for our sins, and that he was risen from the dead, and he freed all of us from from sin and from death. So we get to, um, just by virtue of being the ones who the mystery has been revealed to, we get to be called greater than John. But just like John, we will still have expectations that do not get met. We will find ourselves in places and times where we wonder, are you the one or should we be expecting someone else? We've known that Jesus is the one. We've said, yes, I believe he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But we find ourselves in situations that cause us to question. When John was in prison, he asked, are you the one? So when do we find ourselves asking this question? Is it when we realize that God does not operate by human standards of fairness and equality? I ask God, are you the one? Can I trust you with all the mess I see around me? Or should I be looking for someone else? And you can fill in the blanks for your life. When I was here, that's when I was asking, are you the one? When I was in the hospital, when I was in the courtroom, when I lost my job, when we faced disappointment, when we faced grief, when we face betrayal, illness, when our relationships with our children are broken, I can just see and have experienced and have walked with you to know there are these moments where we just don't understand how God's operating. And we began to ask, like, are you the one? Are you really the one who can solve this? Are you really the one who's going to walk me through this? And I want to tell you, Jesus' answer to you is, yes, I am the one. I am. And you can trust me. But he doesn't always just come out and say it that clearly. Just like he did to John, he starts shifting our expectations in his answer. So we must allow God to shift our expectations. We see Jesus say to John, here's what my kingdom is about right now. It's giving sight to the blind. It's having the deaf hear. It's bringing things that were dead back to life. It's bringing good news to the people who need it the most. I know that you want me to overthrow this corrupt government, and one day I will, but it won't be in the time frame you had in mind. And I know that you want to be led out of a prison cell that you don't deserve to be in. How can the greatest man born of women be in prison? But John is actually going to get worse. That corrupt king, he's going to have your head on a platter. Jesus says, this is the kind of kingdom that I'm bringing, where the greatest lay down their lives. So John, you're preparing the way for the Lord. You're going to die, and so will I, Jesus says. You're going to die to spread this word, and I'm going to die to save everyone. So we who are least in this kingdom that works so opposite of what we would expect sometimes, we're going to have to shift our expectations too. So this ongoing part of saying yes to Jesus 
is every day after the glorious moment of our baptism where we're sure and things make sense is that we do the work of listening for Jesus's voice when he's saying to us, I know this is not what you expected. Can you trust me? Can we look at this a little different? And so we learn to walk with him and allow him to change how we think, what we expect, what we value. It's actually what we talk about all the time at Providence in different ways, right? Um, You're going through a trial. Can you consider it a joy? You know, you think that it's uh, people who are born into poverty that should be pitied, but God says they're rich in faith and they'll inherit the kingdom I've promised. We expect kings to be served, but King Jesus did not come to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we have to shift our expectations. And it leads us to this statement that John the Baptist made and that we need to make our own. Jesus must become greater and I must become less. After we say yes to Jesus, after the glorious moment of our baptism, we learn every day for the rest of our lives how to let Jesus become greater how to allow him to shift our expectations of what God should do in our lives and in our world and to grow in confidence and faith no matter where we find ourselves, that he is the one. There's a prayer in our Wesleyan tradition that I wanna share with you. It's a prayer that John Wesley used to remember and renew the baptismal covenant. This prayer opens our hearts up to allowing Jesus to become greater. It teaches us how to shift our expectations of God as we hear Jesus explain to us what he's doing right now in our lives and in our world. I want you to listen to the original version of this prayer. I'm no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt, rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven, amen. So I want us to take just a moment to pray silently, individually, and to talk to God about our desire for him to become greater and for our our willingness to become less and to ask him, Is there any way that you're talking to me about a place that I need to shift my expectations to trust what you're doing? So let's have a moment of silent prayer. And then I invite you to join me in the more contemporary version of that prayer to close our time together. Okay, if you'll join me in the prayer that you see on the screen, let's say together, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, 
let it also be made in heaven. Amen.